You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. This is a Scottish Football Forum special um, bonus interview with uh, former Aberdeen player Brian Irvin, a hero of mine when I was growing up as a boy. Um, Brian, thank you first of all very much for coming on. How are you doing? Delighted to be with you. I'm doing okay, thank you. Um, these unusual times, but yeah, doing well, thank you. Yeah, it certainly is um, an unusual time. You know, how, um, how are you coping um, with the, the lockdown situation? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of um, unusual for everyone. There's, there's no doubt the new normal for for now, even a month ago or, or just around that, would, would have been un, unimaginable. Um, the changes, the I think the social distancing is quite a big, a big thing. Where really, apart from somebody in work at the moment, if you're at work, if you're able, to, if you're having to work, uh, which I still still do just now, you can relate to that person, speak with that person, obviously keep the two meter rule of um, not being any closer than that. And, a part, and the person you live with in the house you're with, other than that, you've no contact with anybody else in the whole world. So it's that's such an unusual time. Um, I mean, it's changing by the day, so you just don't know. And hopefully, it will change better, better, and, and, and quick to improve as it was. It's quick to get you know to this position we're in just now. But it's certainly been um, unusual times, and it's a certain time in our lives. That we'll, we'll never forget, and I just think that as a person, and I think as a community, hopefully we'll we'll, we'll see the best of people. Although you know you can't trust the people as well with the, the going shopping and buying more than what you need, as if you're never going to eat again, and that's kind of the worst in people. But hopefully we'll remember it for more as as a, the bit we'll see the best in people. And you know I think in the last couple of years where there's been a lot of divisive stuff has happened with uh, Brexit and taking further back the referendum for independence Scotland. That was all about dividing people's uh, opinion with the news. There is something like this, although it's a bad thing, obviously, has brought people together and, and you know that from that point of view I think it's a positive time and, and it's an experience and time that we've all got to go through and hopefully when, when we do look back on it, people will think well that, that generation had themselves well but, um, as we're speaking tonight, I think we've still got a long way to go because you just don't know how it's, it's going to all end up. But um, it's certainly unusual just now in this lockdown situation. Yeah, it's um, certainly something that's been uh, unprecedented. And, you know, most people's instructions are to work from home where possible and, uh, you know, only go once a day for like, just a, a general worker to go to the shops. But you're in a environment where you're you're a key worker in two sections um can you describe it a, a bit about that and that yeah. why you don't get much um, chance to rest at home yeah, one of the jobs um he's interested in just as a key worker because in the last uh, just over a year or so and doing these two jobs and they're, they're not they're not jobs that you know you, you would have thought is not so much a key worker but you thought people would have looked thinking well it's a good job you're doing now they're jobs that you really just wanted to do and help you know, uh, one of the jobs is a care, care officer, so I look after a man who's got learning difficulties. But that company's um, what I do with him is just some of what we're doing just now when we're interviewing. Just I speak with them, with them in a video with them because I can I've actually travelled with him down to his house in Edinburgh from Inverness where I live, and uh, on a Monday and then on a Friday I take him back home from the house that he stays in Edinburgh with other people back to his actual home with mum and dad uh, in Inverness on the Friday, so I do the reverse journey. So that's my, my job Monday and Friday, so as a care officer. But that's actually, I said earlier, it's been put in hold because he's currently staying permanently with his mum and dad just now. And I'll just do video conferences with him on the Monday and Friday and uh, if need be during the week just to see how he's doing. And because he doesn't really understand, obviously, fully what's happening, as I'm sure... You know, you can understand that some of the learning difficulties wouldn't really know what's happening um, in the, the situation. He's got a limited understanding, and so 
it's, it's, it's confusing and, and difficult for him to really fully grasp what's happening. So that's my job on a, a Monday and a Friday. But in between that, I'll, I'll do work. I work in the stock room at Marks and Spencer's in Inverness. I don't know if I'm allowed to advertise. I'm not advertising, but, you know. Absolutely. You could just see a, a supermarket, but it's, it's just the, the food the food hall now. It's open. So I work in the stock room. So that's that's my other job. So I'm so... Um, I could have took and been put in furlough, this new word we've learned over the last couple of weeks. But no, I just continue to work. So I think it's maybe a good thing because I think it's quite good to, to have a, a kind of normal few hours in your week. Uh, even then, it's still not really normal working conditions because there's different things connected with the job that now you have to just do in this current situation. But at least it's a, an, error, an error normality about it compared to... You know, just sitting at home a lot, um, and you know that—that's the two jobs I'm doing now. And as you described them, two key key worker jobs. I've got my lecture if I ever get stopped by the police as to why I'm out uh, going to work, and to, to show them this letter from the man who the the CEO or whatever his title would be at Marks and Spencer. It's to prove that you're a key worker. Um, that's quite a nice way to describe the work because really in the last year I wouldn't have described. I wouldn't have thought these jobs were key workers, you know, they're, they're basically minimum wage and it was just something you did out of enjoy. You enjoyed helping people or trying to do things with a care officer job. And with Marks and Spencer, it's quite a, it's just a good job. I enjoy working away in the stock room with quite a lot of it. You're actually on your own. Um, so that's what it is. It's a, it's a million miles, I think, to be here in football, which is like a different life. I'll get to speaking about that. That'll bring that back in. But I must have here I am now in my mid-50s, and I would have to say what I'm doing now is, is a long way from what I used to do as a football player. Yeah, it's certainly different really. I just want to um, pick up on um, the care worker job you do, because we speak a lot about um, mental health. We were supposed to have a charity football game recently, um, but that got called off um, for charity to go back and say. But, uh, and I suppose what you're doing um, with some learning difficulties, how testing is it just now knowing that you can't see this guy but you're still trying to keep his spirits up through what's a difficult time and I get he's getting learning difficulties but you must have some understanding yeah I think he would have he would have some understanding because you know um I speak to him obviously when I'm traveling with him in a train and it's not like what we're having a, com- a normal conversation uh, where you know you're both able to relate back and forward uh, a lot of it's one way but he would understand what you're saying, but he just then unfortunately can't communicate what he's feeling. Um, he's 33 years old. I mean, I'm not giving any information away here. I'm being no, it's okay. You know, um, you know, but it would be difficult. I, I sometimes feel with with that person that you're working with, type these type of people, the 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 real um, issue I think is with his. Uh, his parents who obviously have, have got a bigger job because sometimes the, the person with that I look after, for example, the, the gentleman I look after, he, a lot of it is oblivious to the, the things that are happening. And so in some way he's protected from the kind of upset or agony almost that his parents have to live through because, you know, again, it's no... Uh, confidentiality thing saying he's 33 years old so 33 years old ago he he was born and it was a third in a family so at that point you can just picture how that mum and dad had two other members of the family gave birth to, to this, this baby and discovered that there was there was problems here so the real issues with the parents and and you know everybody's got a, a, a story and everybody's got a, a you know, I think something they've got to live with it is difficult, and for this family, that's a difficulty. And Neil, the, the great thing I enjoy working with Neil and again, I'm giving his name, but I'm not giving his surname. But Neil's a lovely guy. He's, he's such a lovely. He'll repeat himself a lot, but he's such a lovely man. And it's you know, I, I never think oh that was a long three or four hour journey to Edinburgh today. It just passes quickly, and, and you know. I'm currently not doing that with him because he didn't go down to the house, as I said at the beginning of the interview. And, um, you know, I must admit, I'm missing the journeys with Neil. It's super an enjoyable journey. And, and, of course, the public in general are pretty, are very, very supportive. You know, the, the great thing about how the, the public are behind the NHS just now, 
when I see it with Neil, when I'm walking with Neil, often I have to take a, you know, link hands and, you know, I help him because he's got uh, sight difficulties as well to guide them and whatnot. And when you pass the public, the public, no, you never get a bad look. You always get a supportive, a smile from the member of the public or a, a kind of positive acknowledgement from the member of the public. So, you know, I think generally this, going back to the coronavirus situation, this is why this is bringing the best out in people. People genuinely will, will warm to situations. They can identify or, or feel sympathy towards uh, someone who's not as fortunate themselves. And as I say, that's the good thing about human nature. It does bring the best out in us, um, you know, and it's, but it, you know, that's something I've seen just in people's faces when you're walking the streets to his house in Edinburgh or to his home in Edinburgh where he stays. I've taken him back to Inverness. So you've just seen the best in people and the reactions from them. Yeah, that that's all good to hear. Um, but I'm guessing that you must be um, really missing these conver- um, face-to-face um, conversations with the guy. Um, and you know, we don't know how long we're going to be in this lockdown for. We don't know if it's going to be extended. Um, it doesn't help when people are still thinking they're immune to the whole thing and taking themselves out when the instructions are clear to stay indoors. You know, so I mean, from your point of view, um, you know, how how mentally challenging is it for yourself? Yeah, I mean. That, that's maybe I kind of deflected a little bit from the answer with, uh, when I was speaking about the, 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 if you call it, the client I was working with, because mental health for me is a big thing. I think Neil, I, I, I just keep saying, I'm okay to use Neil's first name, and is different because, you know, he has his issues that are different and not totally mental health. Mental health is a thing that can affect anybody, and it's something I, I get a lot of. Uh, understanding and, and support with you know for example as a football player when you retire from football I played till I was 39 loved playing and the reason I played to 39 was basically because when I was about 35 I didn't want to stop and so I kept going for as long as I could and, and thankfully managed to go to 39 before eventually I just knew I was I was done if you like and and when you when you when you stop playing as a football player it's really, really difficult. And, you know, you're not pressing the sympathy button because nobody will rightly so maybe give you the time of day because you've had such a great experience, perhaps, as a football player that focuses on what you whinging about now. But today, when you no longer get to play football, it doesn't matter what's went before. Today's different. And so, like I said again, what I'm doing now, for example, in work is a, is a night and day compared to what I used to do as a football player. And so how I deal with that is important uh, to how my mental health will be. And sometimes my he- mental health could be could be down. And so, you know, I won't handle it particularly well. So that's, you know, there could be other issues, issues in your head. There could be a, an element of a depressive nature or whatever. And so it can lead to a state of depression and and things like that. So you've got all these issues you've got to deal with to try and keep on top of your mental health and keep your mental health positive. And so mental health is an issue for everyone really to deal with. And, and, and it's never, you're never, oh, I'm okay today, such so me, I'm okay. It's a kind, kind of constant battle, some more so than for others. But I think it's a difficult area and it's an area that people really need to try and, and I think people are very supportive of and, and understanding um, to anybody who's got mental health issues, when it when it manifests itself in a kind of unusual behaviour or whatever normal is, whatever we call normal is, then it becomes clear that there's issues there. But you know, for somebody who's just struggling with it and keeping it under the surface, you know, that person is is basically getting torturing themselves or just having a, an unhappy experience they didn't they don't have to have. And and the thing about for me anyway, never mind the public thing that's coming out, it's so important to talk about it. And I think that's a key thing of mental health is if you've got an issue, it's so important to talk, talk. And of course, in this time when it's social isolation, we don't have that physical connection, but that doesn't stop us from keeping in touch with people and making sure we talk to each other because I think that's a big help to, to try and combat any 
mental health problems that any anybody any one of us could have. But you know that could be over overcome if you like by just talking with other, your friend, talking with someone else, and getting some perspective and some help to maybe just deal with your situation. That otherwise, if you're left to yourself, would just maybe get worse and worse. Yeah, I mean, you also mentioned you were lucky enough um, to form a career in football that lasted from 1983 up until you were 39. Um, you would have seen many a young player um, discarded um, because they were deemed not good enough at like 16, 17, 18. Um, how much of a responsibility football clubs have to protect these guys, to prepare them for life away from football? Because a lot of pl- um, people have found that difficult um, in the past. Yeah, I think they have got a responsibility. And, and I think generally... Um, clubs are getting better at it. There's more and more clubs that got charity wings to their, their football business, you know, and they'll they'll incorporate that. Uh, and the, like Aberdeen, for example, with the the charity wing they've got, you know, that that helps not just the members of the public, but also potentially players. But I think when I think back myself to my playing times, the clubs. It was a, a bit of a token gesture they were making. So, although on, on the paper they were helping to prepare the players for, for life after football or, or you know, issues with, when we were speaking about mental health, it was all just, in, you know, ticking the right box rather than actually practically helping somebody. And yet it's such a simple thing. I'm saying here that for me, mental health is about getting the person get, getting to talk and share what's, what's bothering them. Um, so that's not a complicated or difficult thing. So why why can't it be done more more than it is, or more than it was? And because it wasn't really something that was done in the past, it was kind of brushed under the carpet. And um, you know, it, and as I say, it could have been simply dealt with just given the right opportunity, given the person the chance to talk about what's bothering them and get any thing instead of driving further deeper into your your soul, if you like, or your body, your mind, would be to get it out, and that's that's basically what, what was wrong, I think, in the past. But I think it is getting better, and there's more awareness of mental health, and just to talk about things, and, and whether it's in the public in general. But I think football clubs as well are, are better now at getting the players to to do that. Yeah, I would definitely say so. I mean, the example that um, I always use in the podcast is when Stan Collymore um, went public in 99 and he was ridiculed um, at the time. Um, whereas now you're in the fast forward in the era where Lee Griffiths, and apart from a, a minority um, of rival fans, yeah. like, most people were applauding the fact that he was honest and open to come out. Um, you've got guys like Gary O'Connor who are um, ambassadors for charity, and it really does um, sum up that football has moved on so much um, but there is still a lot of, of work to be done of course yeah I mean but yeah Neil Lennon the Celtic manager has, has spoken over the years as well of having, having issues as well and, and it's not equated there's not equal success you know you think well, why are they why are they saying they've got mental health issues when they're so successful we couldn't be more successful and most supporters for example would love to be in their positions but you know be careful what you wish for um, you know, success doesn't equal not not being affected by mental health. You know, um, if you've got success, whether you're not affected by mental health or are affected by mental health, that's all well and good. But your life is still not uh, dictated to by the fact you're being successful in a football field. You know, your life is being ha- you know happiness or being content or, or having that that mental health balance, it, everything's okay, that everybody, that's what you want. And it doesn't mean that because you're a successful football player, you've got that far from it. And, you know, um, you know that, that that's how it is more beneficial to see that football clubs, just like society, is more understanding and making issues to make, make this less and less of a, a, a thing that will affect people and you know, instead of burning themselves up with it and getting all deeper and deeper and, and more into issues with their mental health, they're actually being encouraged to talk about it and talk in confidence and talk to the right person and confidentiality to get the situation sorted and just, you know, hopefully get them in the, on an even keel, if you like, or whatever the right phrase would be, to get that, that positive mental health 
back in their life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you make great points about you know success doesn't always mean that was that was another stigma. Was it how can you how can you be um how can you be depressed? You've got um, X amount of pounds um, in the bank. You've got you've got all these trophies. You're playing for a successful team. You've got a, a wonderful wife. That doesn't always necessarily mean you're happy because it can add so much pressure as well. Um, and especially in the modern age where Twitter and Facebook, you do have. Although again, as you mentioned, um, most people who use these platforms use it for the right reasons. But unfortunately, you do have the minority in, of trolls that seem to be more spoken about it and want to be. Able- yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. It's just um, you know, we've tried to cover it as best we can. But I, I also think you've got to be careful what you wish for because um, you know, there's never somebody who's got success in a football field is great, but that's only a small part of your life. I mean, you, for example, I used to joke about it, you know when when I was a football player, I would say I don't go home and sleep in my football strip. You know, I do have. A- <laughs> Either football, you know, obviously I'll prepare for a game on the Saturday or whenever the game was in, in, the, in the week. But, you know, the majority of my week is I've got a life outside of football. And, you know, that is just the same for everyone now. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, it's right to have a balance. So I'll take you back to um, the start of your career. And, well, you mentioned uh, just now you've got um, two jobs. Um, but when you first started playing, that was... Um, your, um, at Falkirk, that was your second job, if you like, because you were also working in the bank. Um, just what was it like, um, you know, signing for Falkirk? Yeah, I seem to have always had two jobs. <laughs> As you say, <laughs> I go right back to jobs after school, paper rounds, and working. I think I was, I can remember working in a packing shelves in a, a supermarket. I think it used to be called Fine Fair in my day uh, when I was at school. But then, yeah, I left school and got a job in the bank. It's a quite good wee number in my head. I'm not really a kind of um, creative type of person. I'm more a kind of figure, figure guy. So I'm quite good with numbers. Um, and so I got a job in the bank and worked for three years in the bank. But while I was working in the bank, I managed to get picked up with Falkirk and signed and played uh, Falkirk at the time that I was working in the bank. And I was quite happy with that because I... I always wanted to be a footballer, but didn't think I would get the chance to be a football player. Um, so when I get the chance to sign for Falkirk after a trial one night um, in a game uh, for Falkirk reserves, I, I was delighted and I thought, well, that's, that's that'll do me. All this time, I'm an Aberdeen fan, even though I was brought up in the central belt because my my, my dad moved down to join the police when he was a, a young man from Aberdeenshire where we lived. Uh, where my mum and dad lived. I was just being born when we moved down. But um, so my whole my heart was always Aberdeen, and of course in the mid eighties Aberdeen were a, a very good team. They'd won the league twice. They won the European Cup Winners Cup. So they they were a good team, Aberdeen. The connection with Aberdeen and the fact they were a good team meant that I was a bit unusual coming from the Central Belt supporting Aberdeen. It was more a, a Rangers Celtic or whatever your town was in the Central Belt you normally supported. But I was an Aberdeen fan. I played for Falkirk and I can't believe it when I get the opportunity with Alec Ferguson coming down to speak to me and, and agree to sign for Aberdeen. I couldn't believe this was happening. Um, I enjoyed my two years at Falkirk. I learned a lot under my time under Billy Lamont was a manager. Nobody maybe remembers that name now, but he was a good manager for me. I enjoyed my time at Falkirk and played many uh, an exciting game at Brockville, the old stadium at Brockville. Um, and but when Aberdeen came, just a dream come true for me. I couldn't couldn't believe I was getting the chance to sign for for Aberdeen. Yeah, that must have been a tremendous moment. And you know, your first season, you were obviously mainly in the reserves, learning your trades, and you had a bit of competition in front of you, uh, Miller McLeish. But and you got your first appearance uh, in an end of season game against Claybank, uh, pretty routine six 0 win, as the some players were racing for the cup final. What was that like, fulfilling your dream of winning the Donship in the first team game for the first time? Yeah, well, that was, that was a good question there because that, it took nearly the whole season after the reserves, playing the reserves most of the season. We actually won the reserve league. It was a very good reserve team, a team that probably could have held its own. 
and the you know the reserve, Aberdeen reserves at that time was were, were a good team, you know, and some good players in it. Um, and I never thought for a minute when I made my debut against Clyde Bank, I'd be playing in the cup final the next week against Hearts, because obviously, as you say, people like uh, Willie Miller was being rescued, uh, rested, sorry. But Alec, Alec, the police played alongside. I know, well, I'm thinking he did, but maybe he didn't. It's a long time ago. Um, but the, the great thing about Sir Alec Ferguson was this is a great example of his management that. He still got me involved in the, the next week in the the, the, on the the squad. So I was in the squad for the cup final against Hearts. Never going to play because Willie and Alec were going to be fit to play. And they were the recognised centre-backs and the two legends that they are and were. And, but, you know, so Alec Ferguson given the experience to give me, the experience, sorry, to give me, give me the opportunity to be part of that squad was, was so valuable because it just gave you a great sense of confidence over the summer leading into the next season, the following season, to think I've been involved in the, in the bench, in the squad, and I actually sat in the bench. It was the old bench at the time. It wasn't the bench it is now where a thousand could sit on it. It was just that wee bench, a dugout almost at hand, and mm-hmm. only about five or six people would sit in it. So there was the manager and, and the assistant manager, a physio, you know, and then two subs and the goalkeeper. And then there was me sitting at the end of the bench, but nevertheless, to think that I was getting the opportunity to sit in the cup final bench was a great uh, example. Alec Ferguson's way that he brought that got the best out of you because that made me feel so good that I was really looking forward to the next season. And when the next season was after the World Cup in '86, so Wally I think picked an injury up at the World Cup and he was wasn't ready for the start of the season, so I went into the start of the next season playing right from the start, alongside Big Alec in the centre of defence. Probably about six or seven games, I don't know how many it was, but enough to get a bit more experience. And that's the way my, my Aberdeen career went. It was getting more and more experience, just gradually introducing. Never in my dreams or th- thoughts would I ever thought, I'm going to replace Alec McLeish, Willie Miller. They were, they were household names at the time. And, and as I said, they're legends. And, you know, and I, I thought, and I never have replaced Alec and Wally, but what I what I hopefully over the years managed to do is, is make a, a name for myself. Well, at least Alec and Wally were legends, but you did okay. And that was a gradual thing. I didn't get thrown in and, you know, all the best to see how you got on. It was just you gradually get games and then you would go back out again, get a few more when they were injured or suspended, come into the team, come out of the team. So for a year or two, that's the way my, my career was going, just getting enough games to get an, a bit more experience and you know that's the way I, I kind of developed and got that experience over over a number of seasons before you became a regular in the team yourself yeah i mean you said uh, for those uh, couple of seasons you were deputizing um for miller mcleish would need be but there were obviously sometimes you had to play in different positions like center midfield and i even seen you at right back you scored at ibrooks um, playing from right back you know what was that learning curve like um filling different positions yeah i mean i played every position there was really, I think, other than I played because I was kind of put on up front as an emergency centre forward sometimes when you're trying to get a goal back late in a game. And even goalkeeper, I played three games in the goals when um, goalkeepers, there wasn't a sub goalkeeper on the bench. So there was a couple of times uh, Jim Leighton and Theo Snelders get injured and won against Rangers when, when Theo got a bad injury in the Rangers mm. game and I went in the goal there and kept managed to keep a clean sheet there but the best well actually the only goal I ever lost in those three games was actually a game at Easter Road when I gave away the penalty you know it was a bit dodgy the penalty it wasn't really I don't think even now although it doesn't matter it was a penalty but anyway it was given Theo argued about the, the, the penalty being given and get sent off for it so then I, yeah, then I had to go in the goals my first thing in the goal would be face this penalty that was Pat McGinley was the Hibs player that was taking the penalty and thankfully I saved the penalty so I managed to save a penalty as a goalkeeper clean sheet against Rangers and then my 100% clean sheet record was broken in injury time when a Hibs player scored to beat his 1-0 in, in that game But so I played played all these possessions goalkeeper right back um, and it was all again good for, for your experience and just helped me develop as a player um, and I think, again, it, it 
I don't think in the early days, though, people really thought of Willie McLeese, uh, Willie Miller, Alec McLeese, we're kind of spoiled with having these two great centre-halves. Who's this boy now who's tracked this centre-half? I wasn't a natural fan's favourite, but hopefully over the years, I think the, the warmth to my commitment and just that I was a football fan, for Aberdeen fan, and I was just, a, I always looked to myself as a supporter who was given the opportunity to be a football player on the pitch, and I think that came through in my game eventually. But, but no, no accidents that any lack of ability that I had, I tried to make up for that by doing extra in training, uh, working hard in training, doing extra after training was finished. And under the, when the Richard Donald stand, I remember, was built, the, the wall in, underneath in the concourse in the Richard Donald, I used to spend ages after training knocking the ball off the wall, but, you know, just to improve my touch, my passing, my control, uh, then throw it up off the wall and go and head it. You know, so I practice well, obviously, with my teammates extra, but this was my own personal training. I would do extra as well. So it wasn't, you know, any lacking um, ability that I had. I tried to make it as make up for that as much as I could. So although the fans, I don't think, really warmed to me to begin with, I think eventually they saw that my commitment was there and, and maybe the improvement in my ability playing with the full-time training. I was 12 years at Aberdeen, but initially with the full-time training helping, I started to, to improve enough to think, oh, well, he's not, he's maybe not doing too bad. And I think hopefully I won the fans' support over over the years. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt you did. Um, and I think your honesty and your... Um, you know, your determination for the club um, probably came through because, um, you know, you knew yourself that you weren't going to be um, Miller and McLeish. You know, that's yeah. just a partnership that will always be Aberdeen's greatest ever partnership. But I think you're certainly, would, uh, from my opinion, you certainly would be up there as um, the next level of defenders um, after that from my lifetime. Um, I want to go back to um, 89-90. Um, that was my first season as a Dons fan. Um and it was quite an introduction because uh, I was—I think it was a false dawn for me personally because we ended up winning uh, the two cups. Uh, I thought this is going to be it for life. Nope, um, we've not won the Scottish Cup since then. Um, so, but for you, that was when you really started becoming a permanent fixture because Willie Miller got a bad injury in the Scotland-Norway game and you kept your place right up to including the cup final. Just what was, How established did you feel at that point? Was it when you were named... For the Scottish Cup team, I believe it was the week before the game, you were told by Alex Smith, ignore press speculation, you're yeah. playing. Did that Was that when you really felt that's you? I think so. I think that was... Uh, you never took your place for granted. But yeah, that was was uh, a big confirmation from Alex Smith that, you know, he, 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 he felt I was his number one centre-back, well, number one in that position. Um, just because Wally was getting to the end of his career... Wally fought hard to play on, like I said, that football mentality, you don't want it at the end, um, but obviously, you know, with injury, and just with time again with Wally, it was getting to that stage where it, it wasn't uh, possible really for him to keep going, and, and thankfully when I, I I had a good run in the Scottish Cup, and I was able to come in and do okay, and, and <clears throat> earn my place in the team, if you like, so... That was a good season for us, 89-90. It was a good first season for you to get involved, to really remember supporting Aberdeen because you say both cup finals, we won at the Scottish Cup, the League Cup, and we finished second in the league. You know, so it's almost like nearly, you could say almost a treble, but I think we're a wee bit behind Rangers that season. It was the following season. We ran them close to almost getting to the, the league title until the last game at Ibrox we lost out on. But, you know, that, that was a a great uh, team to be involved with. It was also a great team to be, become confident you're going to do well in because you all these good players, not only in defence, but throughout the team. Midfield to Jim Bett. Up front was Charlie Nicholas and Hans Hillhouse. Goalkeeper, Theo Snelder, Big Alec McLeish, my, alongside myself, David Robertson, right left back, and Stuart McKimmy at right back. You know, see some really good players in that team, so it made it easy to play in that, play well in that team, you're just, you know, my strength wasn't to um, be like a skillful midfielder and, and beat this player and that player. My play, my job was to win my tackles, win my headers, defend, keep it simple. 
and pass the ball on to somebody in midfield who would do something better with the ball than I could. So everybody played their part of the team. And it was just a really good team we had, a good team spirit. I want off the park as well. So, you know, the ingredients were there for a successful team. And, and thankfully, that's what, as you say, for that season, Aberdeen were a successful team. Yeah, definitely. And uh, obviously, it's now coming up for 30 years um, since that final against Celtic. It's still unbelievable that we haven't won the Cup since then. I mean, we've been in a couple of finals, um, but it's not happened for whatever reason. But um, from your point of view, obviously, it wasn't the best best of games from a neutral, um, it, being a nil-nil draw. But when it went to penalties, did you ever believe that it would come down to you being the last outfield player to take one? No. I mean, life, life is like that. You know, John, when I, I reflect on things, I think... I wrote, I wrote a, an autobiography a number of years ago as well called What mm. a Difference yeah. a Game And so it's, it's, true, it's pretty much a true saying in terms of, you know, even everyday things that can happen in a life that are quite dramatic. Um, but obviously this was dramatic. And you think, well, I never for a... I never thought I was going to hit the winning penalty in that game. And yet that's what happened. It's just the way think circumstances unfolded. It wasn't, as you say, a particularly exciting game. Probably a good game for a defender to be involved in because it was nice. Done our job, kept a clean sheet. And um, nil-nil. And then when it went to penalties, it was goals galore. And, it, you know, eventually finished up 9-8-1. And just happened that everybody had hit a penalty almost. I wasn't a... a confident penalty taker so I wasn't particularly confident. I didn't want it. see I didn't want to be a hero and say I'll be a penalty taker in the first one in the sudden death and miss it and cost Aberdeen the so I wasn't wanting to, I thought well I'm not confident at hitting a penalty because I don't have a good record at penalty taking um, so it'd be better to, you know if somebody more confident than me can score can keep us in it but eventually it got to the stage there was nobody left after Anton Rogan missed for Celtic and you know, I went forward and I was in a win-win situation. There was no real pressure. Still going to be all square. Even if the worst happened, then I missed again. But thankfully, I didn't miss. And when the ball hit the back of the net, as you can imagine, speaking to an Aberdeen fan, as I said earlier, I was a fan on the pitch, getting the chance to be a player. So if you imagine those 20,000 Aberdeen fans behind the goal, if you'd said, right, OK, you go and... and try and hit the winning penalty, you're getting the opportunity not only to support the team, but to actually win the game for the team. Can you imagine how nerve-wracking that would be? And so, yeah, it was nerve It was exciting, but nerve-wracking. And so, when it hit the back of the net, what a feeling. And as you say, 30 years ago, but when you start speaking about it again, you start thinking, well, that just feels like yesterday. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible day in... Uh, I mean, earlier on the show, Charlie Nicholas is hitting the penalty now. It was pretty much common knowledge that he was joining Celtic after that game. And if he missed, his new employers were going to be playing in Europe the following season. Um, but, you know, he, he was an ultimate professional in sticking that in the top corner. Um, was your heart beating at that point? Because that was obviously the last penalty before sudden death. Yeah. No, he's used exact perfect description of the ultimate professional. And yet, equally, you could say, well, did he mean to put it in the top corner? Was he trying to put it over the bar? But <laughs> <laughs> no, I would 100% say Charlie meant to put it in the top corner. He was a, it was a fantastic penalty, and that just shows how much of a professional he was. That even though he was going to the team that he was now going to try and keep out in the, um, the game, because if, if Celtic had won, they don't into Europe. And because they hadn't had a good season, it's hard to imagine now that Celtic would, were mid-table, hadn't qualified for Europe. And if they hadn't, hadn't won, if, because well, they didn't win the Scottish Cup, then they didn't qualify for Europe. So he was going to a team that if he could score his, the goal or, or his current employers, Aberdeen, didn't win it, then his new employers, Celtic, would go into Europe. But that just shows the professionalism uh, that a football player has to have. And he did the, uh, the perfect job as you say, putting it in the top corner. I would like to think it was um, a sign of Charlie's total professionalism. Uh, someday when he came to Aberdeen two years before that, came at the time from Arsenal as a, a sort of big-time player, 
you know, that's old saying, big time Charlie. He was the classic, but you really got to know Charlie over the two years he was at Aberdeen and, and by the time he'd left Aberdeen, you know, you were really sad to see him and his wife. I remember his wife, Claire, as well, go because he'd really grown close, uh, not close friend, like best pal, but just got to know him and realised what a good guy he was. And, you know, his penalty was crucial in the last of the normal five to keep it all square. And thankfully, he, he put his away and we went into this sudden death scenario where it was first to miss. Always a Celtic player scored. So the real pressure for me was in the four Aberdeen guys, Big Alec, McLeish, David Robertson, Stuart McKimmy, and young Graham Watson, who all scored their penalties. Because if they had missed, then Celtic had won it in sudden death and would never be having the conversation about scoring the winning penalty. But thankfully, here we are 30 years later, and we're still speaking about that that penalty shootout. Yeah, I could I could talk all night about that. It would um, that that would that would be brilliant. But we'll move on to the following season. Um, you were you were obviously it's your first proper season as a regular because Willie Miller retired. But then um, you then make your debut against uh, for Scotland against Romania. Describe that feel what it was like um, making your debut for your country. Yeah. Just as you imagine, again, I'm saying about a supporter as a player. I, I was a, always a supporter, a football supporter who got a chance to be a professional player. And so winning your, winning the domestic cup, the Aberdeen, and doing well in the, in the League Cup as well that season were, were, were just, as you can imagine, as, as joyful as it could be. And so the, the other thing beyond that level in terms of Scotland, it's, it's a new level that you know, every football player dreams of playing for their country. And, when I get the opportunity to play for Scotland, it was it was pinch me stuff. It was this it's really happening, and in such an important game because it was the first game of the European Championship qualifier in '92, um, and we were against Romania, who were a good team um, at Hamden, and we got a great win, two-one. But I was just picked to play alongside Big Alec, McLeish, and Stuart McKimmy, so there was Aberdeen connection with it. And that helped to help me settle into the game. And, you know, and, and thankfully, uh, we managed to get a win against Romania and eventually qualified for Sweden. I didn't play many. I was in a couple of squads, but I didn't play any other games. But I, I always remember Andy Roxburgh on the television programme once giving me credit for coming into the, the squad and then sitting out again. And that's the type of team he wanted. To, everybody played their part. And that was encouraging to me that I think you know, I played my part in a small way to help that Scotland uh, 92 campaign be a success in qualifying for Sweden, uh, where Scotland played in Sweden in 92. And it all started with that game against um, Romania. I didn't really play again. Sorry, I did play. I didn't play again until 93 when I was I was in a couple of squads after my, my debut against Romania, but then I didn't play another game until Germany. Uh, 93 at Ibrox and I was very fortunate that Hamden was being redeveloped and so I got a chance during that time to play two games at Petaudry for Scotland so that made the dream gets even better doesn't it you know you get the chance to play for your country at your favourite your, your boyhood team ground and so I played a, a qualifier against Switzerland a World Cup qualifier at this time for 94 World Cup again in, in America uh, that Scotland ultimately didn't qualify for. And we're doing a one-each tie at Petrodre against Switzerland and then a 3-1 match against Estonia. Uh, and we won that one at 3-1 against Estonia. Um, so just getting the chance to play for your country was fantastic, unbelievable. Caught, you know, all these words you can just use to describe exactly how how really and you how you probably feel if you get the chance to play for your country and I can't believe I got the chance to play for my country and you know in these big games and more so the actually a couple of them were fortunately at Petardry as well so played at Hamden but also played at Petardry so you know it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, and you also played in the Stade Olimpico against Italy, against uh, you know guys like Roberto Baggio, who the following year ended up reaching the World Cup final. That must have been an experience. I think that would be the ultimate high, that one, because although we didn't win the game, the atmosphere in the, in the, was unbelievable, because Scotland had just a bit... The reason I came back into the squad was Dave McPherson and Richard Goff had a fallout, 
after the 5-0 defeat, which I was in the squad for that game but didn't play against Portugal when we lost 5-0 in Portugal and they had this disagreement with Craig Brown and Andy Roxburgh at the time and so they weren't playing it. They would basically cost them the place in the squad. So I came in for the next game and eventually myself, Colin Henry, who came at the two centre-backs, I think, at the time, and replaced it to Goff and, and McPherson. Um, so, yeah, you know, just the, the game in the Stadio Olympia in, in, in Italy would be the highlight, highlight in terms of take away the fact we lost 3-1. It was just the ultimate high. The atmosphere was, was amazing because Italy at that stage had to, to win to qualify. To, to This game was to, to make sure they qualified uh, from the group and they got the result against us. So the place was just like a patriotic Scottish fans celebrating victory, you know, seeing the Italian ones that they, they've got a past about them. And it came through and they scored a late goal to Wickham. It was 2 1 most of the game and then eventually near the end they scored a great goal to make it 3-1 and the place is the roof erupted, was lifted off the roof of the, the stadium if there was a roof on it but you know, it was just an amazing feeling to be in that game and although it wasn't the result you wanted, it was just it was pinched me again to think I'm playing in this big game Baggio was amazing, great player great technique they were kind of telepathic with a passing to each other, the Kazaragi was the other player for Italy um, you know, and the, the defenders for Italy were really uh, a solid defence. It was just, you know, it was a fantastic setting and a real play. I mean, it just the week before I played for Aberdeen against Torino, uh, if, if I remember right. right. Mm-hmm. So I've been in Italy twice within a week, playing one game against the national team for Scotland, and the week before for Aberdeen, I'm sure it was against Torino. So, you know, that, you have to believe, as I say, I'm speaking about, it's almost like you're speaking about someone else. Did I do that? You know, I'm just doing a kind of mundane job in Marks and Spencer's just now, and yet you're speaking about something that was kind of high profile and just a privilege to be involved in playing against players. Baggio missed the penalty in the World Cup final against Brazil, and you know when the finals came round in '94. You know, unbelievable to play against these players and just to be in the same stage as them. Did you swap your shirt with anyone that night? Yeah, did I manage to get Kazaragi? And I've still got that, unfortunately. I'm, I haven't got it uh, in a frame or anything like that. It's just up in the loft. So, you know, you kind of lose, over the years, you lose touch with your memorabilia. But it's always there. And I think I've had it out to a few times right enough for take to school visits and things like that. But over the years, different jobs I've been involved in to, to show people uh, some of the memorabilia you get, your career caps and, and uh, any jerseys you've swapped from just got Scotland career. So yeah, apart from the taking them out to show some school children or whatnot from any visits that you've been organised, they're just consigned to the loft, unfortunately. Nice one. That's a, it's great memories to treasure. As you say, you got nine caps. Um, perhaps, um, would it be fair to say that, again, we're talking about competition for places. Uh, you mentioned Colin Hendry, you mentioned Richard Goff. They're just two of uh, many good centre-halves that we had around at that time. Um, whereas nowadays, you're looking at the Scotland squad and I don't think there's any that you'd walk into the Scotland team if, um, if it was you from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's a bit harsh. I'm quite, um, you know, the goalkeeper's union. I'm always looking at a defender with a... You know, it's just my opinion, sorry. <laughs> I know, no, I've got a more sympathetic view for a centre back. I think it's, you know, they're, they're good defenders. It's just, you know, it's a bit like what I would class in terms of Aberdeen, for example. Um, when Aberdeen declined a bit in uh, 97, 98, just, just coincided with the time. I, not because I left, but just after I left, Aberdeen had, didn't have a good team and they didn't necessarily have good defenders or, or good or not so much I'm trying to think how to say it but didn't have an international class def- uh, team Aberdeen for example the climb in Aberdeen from where as you say we were still challenging in the league winning cups then we got to the mid 90s where we just have, just avoided relegation and then even worse after that in 97 when you know scored I was in charge and Aberdeen would have been relegated if it had been for league league uh, problems with Falkirk's ground for example but 
to, yeah. Problem was that the players were not good players because they were all good players, but they just won the international classic from back to '95, for example. Jim Bett, Stuart McKimmy mm. had just left Aberdeen. You know, these type of players left, and the players that came in were good players, but they weren't international, weren't international class players. Yeah. And I think that's how Aberdeen, the, the standard just dipped to, to becoming sort of mid table rather than the. the the excellence had almost been in the past with an international stand. Bobby Connor was another one that left as well. So all these all international players all left that roughly are retired or moved on to the end of their career, another team, but weren't really replaced by fellow international players. And I think that at the time was the problem for Aberdeen. And, you know, as I say, there's no blame or criticism of the Aberdeen restructuring or recruitment rather, it was just that these players, although they were good, they just weren't quite international players. Yeah, I was reading more from a Scotland um, perspective, not um, specifically Aberdeen. Um, Sorry, just John, yeah, I'm, I'm using this Aberdeen example as, a, as mm-hmm. a comparison to say that that's the thing with, with Scotland as well. The players that are in the positions just now, they're still good players. Whether they've got that wee edge in international standard, I don't know. Or whether Let's not forget as well, John, the other teams are getting better, you know, that mm-hmm. we're up against. So it's all you cannot, what you can't do, you can't compare past with present. And so somebody like myself, I might have struggled against some of the international forwards you're up against now. And so you wouldn't have looked as, as, as comfortable or whatever. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I find it very, I never, never, ever do For a start, it just sounds like an old has been. It wasn't as good in my day, you know, that type of thing. But you, have to, you can't do comparisons with past and present. And I think the only thing I would say with the present players, they're all good players. But it's just, again, at the international class players, that's what I can't really make my mind up myself on. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, football's obviously evolved um, quite some time from, um, you know, the, the 90s, etc. In the 90s, there was one trophy that alluded to, which was obviously tell the best chance um, obviously came in 91, last day against Rangers. You'd played most of the season, but then I think Stuart McKim had been injured, and then when he was coming back, Stephen Wright had took his position at right back. But in order for Stuart to get back to the team, you seemed to be um, pushed out the team somewhat. How, how did that feel then, having been alongside McLeish and formed a good partnership, to then be left out of the team for the remaining games, especially that last one at Ibrooks? Well, I mean, it almost shielded you a little bit with the disappointment of losing that game at Ibrox, but um, I wasn't dis- I wasn't disappointed because the main, main thing was the team. If, it, if I'd missed those last four games and the team had won the league, then I'd have been as happy as MD, you know. So it didn't, you know, the team player doesn't count his own personal disappointment against how the success of the team goes. But behind the, the scenes as well, John, there was a reason for me coming out. I been struggling with a groin injury. It actually coincided back to the game in the goal in uh, October in the season to replace Theo in the goals. In that game, I had actually strained my groin. And then it got gradually worse and worse and worse throughout the season until I was playing. I could only play with the help of painkillers or uh, Volterol and type more stronger painkillers to try and get through. And so I spoke with the manager, Alex Smith and Jockey Scott at the time, and, and I, I, they had decided, obviously, Stuart and Alec were going to go as centre-backs um, and Stevie at right-back. But, you know, I was I was in the discussion with them and, you know, getting... Uh, they weren't just saying, oh, five to three, Brian, you're not playing today. I, I kind of know, and, and they'd explained why. And the reason why was it, you know, basically I was struggling badly. And was finding it hard to to, to play without the painkillers and find the reaction. You couldn't really train during the week after because it was recovery. And as it turned out, I actually went down for an operation in London after the last game. So as soon as the game was finished at Ibrox and we were backing up in Aberdeen, I was down on the Monday, I think it was, to, to London to get this operation from a Dr. Gilmer. It was called Gilmer's Groin. And to try and get it correct. Rather than get it corrected in October when it actually happened, I tried to do the opposite where I'd play on because I'd kind of never give up attitude. But it was maybe working against me because now 
it was just too. And sure enough, once I got the operation done, couldn't move obviously for about two a couple of weeks or less than that. Maybe, but within three, if three or four weeks, I was back in full fitness, and I was back running during the summer to get fit for a new season. So you see that that was the reason why I, I was out of the team at the end of the season. So it was disappointing that I would have had I been playing. Might not even might not even have got to the last game against the Rangers, needing to win or needing to draw to win the league. If I had played, I might have let the team down, but still having problems because you know it was just so difficult to play because of the, the injury from the groin. Um, so that was why I didn't play in the, the last four games. But I'd, you know, I'd obviously done my part to get the team into the position that we nearly got to over the, the finishing line. How good that would have been if we managed to win the league. By getting a draw against Rangers that day, we nearly did it. A lot of the supporters thought that Alec and Jockey Scott, the manager, uh, manager, had kind of decided to go defensive, change the formation a little bit. But I think it, it was just it didn't go for us. With two good chances to to get ahead in the game, and then Rangers got a good a goal from Mark Hately to to go one up. And once Rangers are one up with the whole Ibrox behind them. It was very difficult to see us coming back after that. So it was going to be a difficult ask to get a result in the game anyway from that point. But um, that would have been that, that. That's the one disappointment, I think, football wise, that I look at thinking, oh, I never quite got the Premier League winner's medal that I, that I hoped I would and could have got, would, would manage to stop Rangers winning nine in a row, for example. That, that would have been their fifth title. So if we'd managed to win, they would never have got in nine in a row. Um, my only consolation was I got a reserve winner's medal my first season at Pataudry. And when I moved to Dundee, I managed to get a first division or a championship medal with Dundee uh, when they, they were no championship first division when I went from Aberdeen to Dundee. So well, without a doubt, probably that would be the biggest disappointment playing-wise. We never managed to get the, the win or draw that day that we won as a league. Yeah, it's, um, it goes without saying how big a disappointment that was. I mean, six months later, um, Alex Smith unfortunately loses his job. Um, I know Aberdeen fans are always split down the middle as to um, whether it was the right decision or not. Um, I personally think it was they were cheated after that. Um, game in 81 was discussing. I remember speaking to Alex Smith um, a couple of times, and I know he's pretty. Um, upset about the way he was treated and understandably so from my position um, it's it's just incredible how things work because back, back then Aberdeen fans are moaning from going 4-4-2 four, sorry from 4-3-3 to 4-4-2 whereas now they would like they would rather go 4-4-2 instead of the 4-1-4-1 or whatever it is they're playing these days yeah I don't think the 4-4-2 was a problem because yeah, I, mean, I, I had a good success with the 4-3-3 and it was about 11 games in a row we had won that game and got us to the position where we were above Rangers in the last game. Um, but I know, I mean, the four-three-three, for example, was on paper more attacking-minded than the four-four-two. But we we never had an an inch, you know, an intention to try and just go for a draw. We wanted to get another win down at Ibrox, and the four-four-two just seemed to suit suit the. They probably debated it. And in many ways, if they had stayed 4-3-3, you know, that would have been the easy option for them. It was a brave decision for Alex Smith and Jockey Scott to take to change it in that game at Ibrox. So it definitely wasn't, let's get a draw here. Because it was still to get a win. And as I say, the early chance we had in the game, one of them from Hans Heelhouse, or he won, for example, I remember, had went in and we went one up. I think, you know, it would have been hard for us to certainly to lose a game from that point. But yeah, it's a debate. The fans can, you know, have their, their opinion on the four four two being a bit defensive and whether it did ultimately cost Alec his position as manager six months later, I don't know. It was certainly not a good season the following season, so you know, there was maybe other issues I don't know about that fans will never know about that was maybe going on that cost Alec his position. But it's so it certainly was disappointing because I've got the utmost respect for Alec Smith. Um I thought he was a I mean, when Alec left, Jockey had already left to be the Dunfermline manager. So, you know, there was already, as I'm saying, there was issues in the management side going on. And the, the board obviously just decided to, Wally had 
come in to help. Willie Miller had come in to help Alex. Uh, sorry, when when Jockey had left, he was the manager. I think Willie was now the reserve team manager after his playing was over. So he was already on the uh, coaching team anyway. Willie Silver, so from the director's point of view, you can see they were kind of thinking, well, he's, he's, he's a bit experienced with coaching anyway now he's ready maybe for management and who knows they, they thought they were doing the right thing but it's, it's proved with hindsight it wasn't to be because it, it, initially with Wally it did work out quite well when Wally took over with a couple of good seasons um, the third season was the season when he got relegated and that's where it, obviously Wally left the position but you know football's a funny game and you just don't know how, how it could go and one result could change, change the whole course of um, Wally's management career, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I listened to a recent podcast um, that Wally was on and he was talking about that, um, that maybe he went in a little too early. But as you say, the first two seasons, the first season in particular, we finished second in all competitions to a very good Rangers team. This was a Rangers team that nearly reached the Champions League final um, in 92-93. So it was no disgrace going down to that team. Um, but, you know, we had, we had such a good team then. See those two those two seasons in the Willie, 92-94, when we finished second in the league both years, and you got more caps for Scotland. Would you say that was the best football of your career? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And it's a good... It's a good uh, question, John, because I think the reason my football was the, the, my best was because Wally was a centre-half himself, and so I always felt under pressure from Wally to, to keep my place in the team. I had to play at the top of my game, and that's where the training would... I would do the extra training. I would do the extra with my teammates at training, but do extra myself at training, just to make sure I could keep my place in the team. And of course, it reflected, as you say, the number of games that I played, played for Scotland as well. And, you know, so from that point of view, I would say I played the best. Never mind the respect I had for Alec Ferguson, the respect I had for Alec Smith. But I'd say my best football was under Wally Miller because, you know, I knew he was he was a, he was such an excellent centre-back himself and he would be hard on me if I made a mistake, but for the right reason. And so that pressure on me was, was good because it helped, I think, to bring the best out of me. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the third year under Wally, I didn't really get to... He'd signed John Ingles because, you know, obviously that was somebody he thought could come in and help at centre-half. Um, and so by that time, it was too late because I couldn't get my place back. And John basically kept his... his place in the team, John Ingalls kept his place in the team at my expense. I was also getting bothered with a knee injury. I went in for an operation uh, in November I think, the, that season. So that kept me out of the team as well. As well as John kept me out of the team, John Ingalls. So I never really played until Wally eventually left after the game. He was uh, sacked against Kilmarnock in February that year. By that time, we're kind of struggling in Aberdeen and Hard to say it, but I was second, third bottom in the league. And Wally left. Roy took over, Roy Aitken. I never, and I eventually got in with, I think it was Easter Saturday against Celtic. Eventually, Roy brought me back into the team. I had the horrendous game at uh, Stenish Muir, obviously, where we lost the cup tie at Stenish Muir. I was in the bench, but I wasn't. I'm on near the end, so I don't know if that makes me culpable or whether I'd, that's a get out of jail card. I wasn't part of that horrendous result. But, um, the, the proper start I had, had under Roy was in the Celtic game on Easter weekend, and I scored in that game. And that was that was the one that started the juggernaut running for us to get out of the position because we're kind of bottom of the league at that time. We lost against the Motherwell, I think, just after that Celtic game, so you thought, oh no, we're. We're not quite out of the woods yet. We're still bottom of the league. We got ourselves going. And the amazing thing with that season was, again, it's a bit like the situation with the coronavirus virus just now, where it was such a bad situation that it brought out the best in the team. Brought out the best of the team in the park. And equally, it brought out the best of the supporters. 
and it galvanised the supporters. And you know that that Vernon, for example, the Dundee United game at Petardry was as if we're going for a, a, a European Cup winners' cup final again. It was just as it, it was to stay in the league. And we've managed to beat Dundee United, and that was the one that got us off the bottom, got Dundee United into trouble. And so we're, we're then getting the playoffs, and you know that that season was incredible. That that one for me, John, is means more to me that we survived and didn't get relegated as an Aberdeen fan, and winning almost winning the cup. And the, I think the atmosphere and the relationship between the supporters and the players was so good. The fans felt that as well. It was like a winning a cup, even though there was no cup from the beat and Fairman to stay in the league in the playoffs. Uh, and the, you know that, that that was fantastic. And that's for me in some in some ways. I think you could never beat winning things, whether it was the league or the cup. But that that season, after all the disappointments, the high of, of surviving and coming out of it. Um, was was magnificent, and it's a bit of a parallel for the story for today. You know that they say there that this horrible virus that's causing everybody to be self-isolating is such a bad thing. But hopefully the positives are, are it's a good thing for how people are looking out for each other, and it's bringing the best out in people. That was the story in 1995 when we nearly were relegated, but we didn't, and the supporters and players alike felt as if they were all together and managed to keep Aberdeen in the Premier League and that was fantastic Yeah, that, that's a pretty good way of uh, summarising it And Was that Dundee United game the best atmosphere you've had at Petodre? Absolutely, yeah, it was fantastic I mean, we've we, we managed to pretty much control it went, I think we went one up uh, with Billy Dodds and then got a second goal with Dunkey Shearer and we're 2-0 up and cruising not cruising, but comfortable, I should say. And then we managed to give it a go with five, ten minutes to go against United in the last five minutes. It's just having to make sure you defend, because if we're drawing it, would have allowed United to be ahead of us going into the last game right, with our controller staying up. So, yeah, the atmosphere, and it was so so exciting when we, we managed to get the result. But again, going off the park, there was an empty left the ground. A funny story was I I went to kiss the, the, the badge, you know, going off to acknowledge the cheers of the supporters, and I actually didn't realise I'd kissed the Umbro badge rather than the Aberdeen side of the badge. <laughs> I got that mixed up. But, yeah, that was an exciting... That was fantastic. The atmosphere... I get a real buzz thinking about that atmosphere. Thinking about the 20,000 at Hamden for a cup final. But Petaudry full, every man who was there behind you almost to the willing you on to get the result. And getting the result... You're, you're as high as a, as a football player. That's the ultimate feeling of job done and what a feeling that was. It took you a long time to come down to earth after that game. <laughs>